0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go yet another incredible episode. My guest for today is M Reem Ifrak. And wait till you all hear what we talk about. They have so much wisdom and experience to share about Trans and non binary people trying to get treatment, about fat phobia in the medical institutions, about art therapy. I mean, I could just go on, but as usual, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone. I am incredibly excited about our guest for today. Today, we are speaking with M. Reem. Efraj. M, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, Karen, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I am so excited and so honored to have you on the show today. Um, I I heard you talk a few months ago at a conference and I I had goosebumps. I had tears in my eyes. I had love in my heart. I had sadness in my heart. Tell the listeners a little bit about who you are.
1: Sure. I mean, so as Karen said, I'm M and in my professional life, I'm an art therapist and I treat eating disorders mainly in queer, transgender, nonconforming conforming people. I run an IOPPHP program with Walden and I'm on the board of a bunch of nonprofits, including Project Heal, right? We help provide treatment equity access funding and I'm from Connecticut. So I'm also on the board of The medical office I actually go to, Anchor Health Initiative, and we provide medical care for those, both in the gender affirming process, anyone who's queer and people affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, Separate from, I think, my work life, I'm an artist and an activist and an animal rescuer. In fact, my rescue dog, Pinball Wizard, is right next to me. I'm obsessed with Elton John, so if he's listening, call me. And I always tell everyone, I just feel like I'm this magical entity that feels so grateful to be on this planet and get to do all the things I get to do.
0: Okay. First of all, if Elton John calls you, will you have him call me after? Will you be like, oh, wait, can you call Karen after? I'll just, I'll just call you in. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <Share>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're off to a great start, everybody. <laughs> you know, I, I want to start with You you said that you're so grateful to be like who you are, where you are, what you do in this world. And it did not come easily. Like there was a journey to get here. So can you share some of your journey and how you got to where you are now? And then we'll go into some other, just, you know, there's so many things I want to talk to you about.
1: (laughs) Sure. I mean, so, I mean, obviously, all of our journeys with our bodies starts, I think, when we first become aware that we have one and what that means. And I can just remember being eight or nine and having a doctor tell my mom, who was my biggest advocate growing up, um that I needed Jenny Craig and that I needed to start drinking two to three liters of water a day. And, you know, luckily, I had a hippie mom who was in early childhood education and was like, so that's not appropriate developmentally for an eight-year-old. So we're not going to do that. But the damage of hearing that had already been done. Um, And I was always the tallest kid in my class and always the biggest kid in my class. So I became very acutely aware of not only being in a bigger body, but taking up space, what taking up space meant. Um, I was raised by parents who were older than all of my friends' parents. So, I also had a different way of talking. My knowledge was different. You know, growing up, we got to, you know, listen to opera and jazz and see art and it wasn't just, you know, kids shows. We did a lot of adult things that were educational. And so I was just different and different in this world is really hard. Um, And different in the nineties was especially hard, right? There was no social media. There was no exposure to people that were like me and, I had all of these feelings about myself and my body that now, as an adult, I realize were about my gender and my sexuality. But at the time, I was just convinced if I would just be in the smallest body possible, everything would be fine. And that idea stuck with me throughout my adolescence, early college. You know, I tell everyone when I look back, I've had an eating disorder since I was probably 12, but no one really diagnosed me until I was in my 20s because when you're in a bigger body, you can't possibly have an eating disorder. You definitely can't have anything anorexia related, right? Because there's no way that a body that looks like mine could be there. Um, and basically, long story short from there, I met a great therapist and a dietitian, And we kind of worked on my relationship with food and my body. And I met my you know, now partner that I'm married to who had his own struggles with his own sexuality and stuff. So, you know, I have this partner and we kind of chose to explore our sexuality and my gender together and kind of do this beautiful growing parallel process where we were committed to each other and to being the versions of ourselves where I no longer needed this eating disorder or pieces of it. And when I was finally able to let go, I was finally able to come out and really embrace myself and allow myself to actually actualize the career that I wanted on top of everything. So, coming out and letting go really kind of gave me everything. What
0: do you say to people that don't have a support system like you? It sounds like your parents were open, non-judgmental, supportive. You have a partner. You know, it sounded like you got a great treatment team that did not put you in a box and say you are actually this way when you're like don't tell me who I am.
1: So what do you what do you tell people? Um So the interesting thing was, right, first of all, growing up, my mom was super supportive. My dad and I did not have a good relationship until we were adults. And my whole family separate from my mom was actually not supportive. But all we need, right, studies show all you need is one person that will affirm you. So you have to find that one person that's going to stick by you regardless of what other people are going to say. And that could be a parent or a family member or a friend. It could be a therapist. It could be going to a support group and kind of meeting someone there that's your person. And then I think for me, the other thing was growing up, I actually had a therapist who told me, you know, as a kid to not talk about sexuality or gender. And I understood that that was wrong from a young age. And so interview your therapists. Don't just say yes, because that we have a license. I'm still a person that clearly has had this whole life of experience that could potentially make me not the right fit for someone. So interview your providers, say no, set boundaries. Um and don't be afraid to reach out to organizations that have support groups and ask for help. There are a lot of resources out there in our field that are just not advertised or talked about, which I think is such a shame.
0: Well, I think it's a shame because to some degree, I have a greater privilege. I have the privilege of saying no to a therapist and finding more like interviewing more. And I know, and we talked about this earlier. One of the, one of the reasons why my clients love working with me is because I have lived experience. So take that person who is transgender and non-binary and they're not represented in the field of psychology and then at eating disorders. So that's really, really complicated. And wh- what do we do with that? I mean, like we said earlier, they, there the assessments the assessments which is the the beginning process somebody has the courage to finally pick up the phone and call and say i need help and then the assessment doesn't even match who they who they feel like they are what do we do with this that's a big problem that's just one big problem
1: agreed i mean part of that problem is most people when they first get an assessment it's not your PCP. It's that you finally have the courage to call a treatment center. And, you know, I work for one and treatment centers are always assessing you to come to their center. So the first thing I always recommend to people is, you know, Project Heal Plug. We now have a free assessment program. You can actually sign up and get an assessment with someone that knows things like, When trans or non binary people are calling, there are things we have to pay attention to. The same way, if someone is BIPOC or API or low income, there are things we have to consider in that assessment. So, not just what your diagnosis is, but what resources can we connect you to once that assessment is done? And if not Project Heal, then finding something like that where it's not necessarily just aligned with whatever service someone is trying to provide you. And, you know, I think the failing of the field is you know, 50 to 70% of trans non-binary people are going to have an eating disorder at some point in time comparatively to our cisgender peers. But we don't ask the right questions, right? We assume that because someone is trans and they have a body image issue that that's normal, right? Because gender dysphoria is normal. But what we don't look into is, well, what does gender dysphoria make you do to make it go away, Say a little bit more about that. Expand
0: on that last comment.
1: Sure. I mean, so like from my own experience, right? The less I weighed, the smaller my hips and the smaller my chest was. And because I didn't, there weren't a lot of non-binary people that were famous out there growing up. You know, I literally had like David Bowie, which like loved him and continued to love him. And I was never going to have this really rail, thin, masculine, androgynous body because that's not how I was born. But I was seeking to attain the only thing that I could see. I work with clients who try to gain weight to get rid of any kind of gendered form, right? It works on both ends. But gender dysphoria is kind of like having bamboo and razors under your nails all day. And people occasionally throwing salt and acid in the wound. And so you'll do anything to make that go away. and And eating disorder does work. Let's
0: imagine ah oh, in my in my fantasy world, there's thousands of therapists, clinicians and dietitians, millions of dietitians and clinicians listening to us talk right now. How do we train them? How do you train a clinician who is used to working with cisgender people? typically in a smaller body, how do you help them, A, tell the difference between body image distress and gender dysphoria? Uh, w- what do you do? Because by the way, it makes sense. And I hate to like add fuel to the fire, but it makes sense if I want to look a different gender and I don't want to have surgery, I will change my body at any cost, whether it's through restricting or binging. Here's the million-dollar
1: question. What do you do? I mean, so the first thing I always say to all providers is get basic training in how to clinically work with people that are gender nonconforming, not in the eating disorder world. We need to, right? If you're going to do this work, you need to medically understand things, right? If someone is taking hormones, how does that change their body? And how does that change their mental health presentation? If someone does want affirming surgeries, what are the risks? What are the rewards? How do you write a letter? Like, you need to learn all the basics before we get to the now with an eating disorder, right? So, now you've done that and you're working with a client with an eating disorder. So now you've got to get more training and experience. And the place I always recommend to people um, is Fenway Health. I've done a bunch of trainings with them. You can actually watch all of the ones I've done with them for free on their website and sign up for CEUs with them. And they do a lot both on the medical and the body image component of this specifically, because um, other than thinking of two or three providers and maybe one organization that does training on this there is not a lot out there. And the problem is that there's nothing out there. Clinicians keep making innocent and genuine mistakes, because they don't know. And it's one of those, like, I fully believe you don't know, until you know. But if I don't create the information, then we just keep harming people by accident.
0: Can you explain maybe the difference for people that don't know the difference between gender dysphoria
1: and body image distress? Sure. So generally, right, body image distress goes away within the treatment process as you're working through those issues, right? We learn how to tolerate our stomach or the shape of our body or that our body changes with eating. What we can't do with gender dysphoria is that we can do radical acceptance and some level of tolerance but it's different in the sense that it never goes away even after surgery like I'm the first person to say to people I have had top surgery I've done all my affirming processes to to all the things that I wanted to feel as good in my body as possible and at the end of the day I was still assigned a different gender at birth and that trauma can never go away and so with gender dysphoria, it's teaching people to be comfortable enough, teaching people to do the things that they need to do for themselves to feel comfortable and to know that someone who maybe wants to have what we would consider for cis people an elective surgery is not elective for a trans person.
0: You know, m- my my heart just opened up even more, but this is going to sound funny. It's It's actually... It's actually sadder, <laughs> if that makes sense. I'm I'm imagining we all need love, support, compassion, non judgment, not to be labeled, not to be put any in a in, a, in a, a clinical treatment box. Somebody who is non binary has even more suffering, m- more vulnerability, more and and forgive me if I'm saying this incorrectly, more shame, more judgment, and that's. That is not. I, from what I saw when I worked in treatment centers, I did not see that being nurtured. Again, there's still people are still like you're either male or you're female or somewhere, and we'll we'll work in a way that that we know. How, what do you? What does that do to somebody? Like my heart is just hurting right now. Em, that's all I can say.
1: <laughs> I mean, from from my own experience of being non-binary. Um, sometimes I have to have a really big voice. And sometimes I honestly in situations just stay quiet because it's too painful. But I hear a lot of can't you make a decision? Or they them pronouns are too hard, or we shouldn't use pronouns at all then. Um I have a lot of clients that report to me actually being forced to choose a binary gender while in treatment because it would make the treatment provider more comfortable.
0: Um, it, people can't see me right now, but, like, my face just went. it is it is not the client is not supposed to make the treatment provider more comfortable. That is not anyone's job. The job is for the treatment provider
1: to fully be present in there for the client, agreed. And I mean, the thing that I think a lot of people, not just providers, don't understand is, you know, even in the transgender nonconforming community, Being non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer means that also binary trans people can attack us. And I've had that experience where someone who I, many people and past clients who I thought would understand my identity were frankly disgusted by the fact that I wasn't making a binary choice when I don't actually believe anything in this world is a binary system anyway. Um, and so really what a lot of non-binary people face isn't just issues in treatment with their providers, it's also their peers in and out of treatment who we think are safe because they're queer, but are not always.
0: What is it, and and I imagine it was pretty much all that we just talked about, like shame, judgment, I, we haven't even started talking about politics, don't get me started there. Like, <laughs> what is it that makes trans and non-binary and non-conforming people at higher risk, Is it the fact that there's no representation? Is it the fact that there's no assessments and that doesn't make someone hire. but is it the fact that this is something that people typically keep hidden? And so they're using the eating disorder, changing their body. Is there, is there other, are there other things?
1: So it's all of that. And a lot of social rejection, family rejection. It can be fear and perception of rejection, right? Where clients have family that are trying to be supportive, but they're so afraid to lose them that they're not saying anything. It can be, um, like you were saying, right? The body image piece, politics and social structure is a really big thing. You know, when you go to fill out a form for a job and your gender marker isn't on there, that's a rejection. Then you go to the DMV, and depending upon what state you're in, will depend upon what can be on your documents. And with kind of what's currently happening in the world for a lot of trans people, where states are trying to make it illegal to be trans for adults, where it would actually be a felony for me to enter that state with the way my documents are right now, and I would go to jail. And so for any of us, that is terrifying, right? Why wouldn't someone have an eating disorder, or a substance use issue, right? Self-harming, acting out behavior when you, you literally can't feel safe in the very country and world in which we pay taxes to and have helped create. It I'm I'm trying to imagine
0: with all the things that could be illegal in the world, things that really do harm that you could get arrested for. Being arrested for how you feel in your body is. Disgusting. Yep. As if you are as dangerous as somebody, a, a criminal, a violent. Do you
1: see what I'm? I no. That is exactly how I feel. In fact, when all of this started, I was sitting in in this very spot, crying with my partner and a friend of ours, and saying, "How am I as dangerous as someone who sex traffics children?" when I have actually worked with children who have been sex trafficked and helped them heal, you know, especially as a provider, as a therapist, as someone who's been really open with the world, very vulnerably in hopes of cultivating more love rather than this nonsensical hate. It just feels so personal.
0: I, I Personal. I don't even, it's forgive me. I'm actually uh, speechless and, and that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> because I can talk forever. I am speechless at it. And it just, and again, I don't want to turn this into a political show, but it just terrifies me. Some of the other implications of some of the other decisions that have been made and, uh, oh my goodness, I can't. Well, let me ask you a question. Can we take a hard turn? Because we're also talking about, you also are an advocate for fat phobia, can you explain to the listeners a little bit about what you just explained to me before we got on about your physical condition right now?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I can talk about myself all day. <laughs> uh, um, So I am currently sitting here with two broken heels. I have um, two chronic health conditions, fibromyalgia and Epstein-Barr, um, and degenerative arthritis, which is genetic within my family. We don't really know how it happened. Um, I have a wonderful PCP. They sent me to a podiatrist who told me that physical therapy and buying very expensive sneakers and insoles and all these things were what I needed, even though they took x rays of my feet and they could see very, and I've seen my x rays, very broken heels that will probably need casts or surgery. Um, But because it probably happened because I'm fat, magically, we're not sending me the places I need to go. Lucky for me, my PCP and I are very close. We've shared clients. We do a lot of work together. We have a really beautiful relationship. Um, And so I was able to literally message them and go, can you believe this just happened to me? Can you send me to an orthopedist? And I magically have an appointment at Yale tomorrow, which for anyone that's ever, you know, from Connecticut or knows of the Yale medical system, that actually never happens, um so again one good advocate who does not treat me like my fatness is a problem is a great person to have and I've been in pain for many 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 weeks with this um trying to have someone that I thought was going to take care of this take care of it and it turned out they weren't
0: You also realize how much more harm physical harm we're doing to somebody by saying so let's let's put aside for just a moment, the emotional harm of being vulnerable in a doctor's office, and they're saying it's because of your body size. What about the physical harm that of you? And I'm just going to use you as an example, or anybody else that's, that goes with a medical condition that doesn't adequately get treated. The treatment gets pushed out maybe like a year because they're saying you need to lose weight first. It's all about weight. It is terrifying how much
1: more damage can be done to the body. Well, I mean, I am going to admit this publicly, I think really for the first time ever. So lucky Karen. Um, I had bariatric surgery a few years ago, despite having an eating disorder, because those chronic conditions were not diagnosed. And the doctors had really convinced me the only way I would ever feel better was if I made that choice. And What it did was it actually made my chronic condition so much worse that I was finally able to get a diagnosis.
0: First of all, I want to say thank you for sharing that. I want to say thank you for not just sharing it on the show, but to everybody. Do you want to go any deeper into that experience? Or do you want to leave it at that? Because we all have a right to say that's as much as I, as far as I want to go with something. So mm. I, I want to leave it up to you if you'd like to go deeper.
1: No, I'm happy to talk about it. It's just um, the one time I told a group of people about it, obviously not on a podcast, I was doing some Hayes advocacy work. And I was shamed for having one and told I shouldn't ever talk about it because I could harm a client. And I'm sitting here thinking, but I have clients that have had eating disorders that have had bariatric surgery. And that's why they come to me because they get a, you know, a sneaky referral from someone who knows me who knows and says, this might be the right person for you. And my story is not that uncommon.
0: I also want to point out that if anything, and I, and I hate to be negative, but anything can harm a client. Also, if we're clinically appropriate, things can be personal experiences. Talking about lived experience can be more therapeutically healing than a CBT worksheet. Agreed. On so, so many levels. <laughs> okay. So I just wanted to go there. Okay. So go go ahead. And I'm sorry that you got that response.
1: I mean, our field is super fun because at the end of the day, we're all still people. And most of us in this field, if we have not had an eating disorder or a body image issue, we have loved someone dearly who has. Um, and so this is very personal. And because it's personal, I think people react sometimes with each other as providers from the personal without stopping. And I get that. And so while it hurt. I'm also like, that's okay. I don't need to be in a space where people treat each other like that because that's not what I'm about. Um, But I mean, basically I was in a body where I was having a really hard time walking. Um, My knees really hurt. I wasn't happy in my body. I wasn't fully out yet. Um, And kind of no matter what I did, eating disorder or not, I couldn't lose weight. And I was really convinced by providers that I trusted that, that was going to be the best decision for my health. And since this was a time before I really understood the things I understand now, I heard lose weight and health and that made sense to me in the moment. And so I agreed to it really hoping that it would be the solution to all of this pain I was always in, all these physical issues I was having. So, you know, six months leading up to surgery, you're basically prescribed an eating disorder And then basically for the year after surgery, you're allowed to have anorexia without anybody saying anything, which for someone that's in recovery from an eating disorder, fun time. By the way, the screening that they do for these surgeries for eating disorders asks you about active symptoms for up to 30 days before you're filling out the survey. So if you're in recovery, the answer is probably going to be no to most of the red flags.
0: I, again, uh speechless. (laughs) speechless. Right. <laughs> Damn, <this> is, <laughs> so, can you, can you talk about, well, first of all, let's talk about what happens when we, when a medical provider hits on someone's incredible vulnerabilities, weight, health, things like that. So what, wh, hmm, let me think about where to go with this. Well, what would you do now, now that you know more? And, and would you, and, and it sounds like, and when I use the word impulsively, I don't think you were just like, yes, sign me up. But it sounds like it was a decision that was made. And again, hindsight being 2020, 20, you would have done something differently. So what do you, how do you guide somebody who's sitting, listening to this right now? And they're like, that just happened at my doctor's
1: office. I mean, knowing what I know now, and especially reading all the research about how ineffective most weight loss is anyway, what I would ask for instead is, can you actually get an x-ray of my knees and get treatment for that first? Can you actually get an x-ray of these things? Can you actually run blood tests for these things and make sure that everything else that I'm complaining about is taken care of before I do something like literally cut a healthy organ in half? And after all of that, if you think that's the only solution, then we can entertain the conversation with an advocate in the room and appropriate research being provided to me with studies that prove longevity.
0: Again, there is funding to do research on a small population of people that actually there's a reason why it's a small population. They don't really exist. Meaning the 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 research for people in larger bodies or non-conform like whatever they're I hate the word norm ooh, but they're becoming more but they're st- we're still not representing and doing the research necessary. What is the long term research on a on bariatric surgery? Do you know
1: there isn't any. The longest that they do studies on is five to ten years, and usually at that point. The majority of people that are not eating like they have an eating disorder have gained a lot of the weight back. The only way to, you know, sustain it is to work out a certain amount every day and count your calories and your macros. And we know what that is.
0: How did you find a PCP that was so educated or do they have lived experience or how do you, how do you help people find someone like that?
1: So, I mean, this is the privilege of specifically living where I live in Connecticut. So I live in New Haven, Connecticut, which means Yale is literally five to 10 minutes from my house, which means I have access to, okay, a broken system, but a a good broken system in the sense that, you know, you have access to some of the better doctors and tests. And Connecticut also has one of the first out non-binary doctors, my doctor. So I looked for a doctor that had lived experience in terms of gender and sexuality and hoped that when we met, we could have honest conversations about the fat phobia and things I faced. And not only were they open to those conversations, but they knew the information and they were willing to learn more from me. And because we're also colleagues and we've shared clients, we've been able to learn a lot from each other, both about eating disorders and, You know, the affirmation process and other things that I know, but I'm not a doctor, so I certainly don't know everything. And what was great is their theory ultimately is like, you're the client, it's your body, you set the boundaries, you tell me what you want and need, and I will not bring up things that you're telling me you're not ready for me to bring up unless I think you're at eminent risk.
0: That level of respect, first of all, everybody deserves that that should be the the expected the basic we should all be treated that way what do you tell clients what they should be asking when it comes to say treatment what are some important questions they should be asking so they don't feel like the afterthought
1: so i mean for clients that are trans or gender nonconforming when they're calling an office actually ask them to ask things like, do they have providers with lived experience? Do they have gender neutral bathrooms? Can they send copies of policies of how they do gender affirming care, right? Don't commit right away. Ask for documented proof that that they're saying in a document that they're going to do something because then when they don't, you have a document. And that's very different because gaslighting, as we know in the medical community, is very, very rampant. And we'll hear things like... um, Well, no, like that's not the policy. But if you have it in your hand, yes, it is. The other thing that I um, kind of remind clients to do is to remember the phrase, if I was in a smaller body, would this be the same treatment you would provide? If not, I would like you to document that you provided me with a different modality of treatment based on my body and size. What happens
0: when you ask providers to do that? How do
1: they feel? Um, they get immediately scared because they could potentially get sued for that. And it is an ethics violation. And then they usually provide you with the treatment that they would give that person. And then pending your insurance and what your resources are, hopefully you find a new doctor unless this person's willing to change and work with you.
0: The I, I sort of touched on this a little bit earlier in the interview, but the fact that fighting for just your right to get adequate treatment is when you're already in a, in a place of vulnerability, suffering, you know, having to work through traumas, things like that, to have to first do that, it it really makes you recognize the courage of somebody walking through those doors. It's also unfair that it has to be that way.
1: I mean not only is it unfair but it's it's negligent and it's unethical and these are the things that lead to things like eating disorder and substance use development so instead of doing your job as a medical professional you're actually causing much deeper issues
0: you know i love that you say ask for the policies because many programs, many providers, we all do this. Like if you go on to my psychology today, there's like three highlights of what I specialize in. And then it also says other things that I, I work with. And there's like 20 other things that I've checked off. So if you call a treatment center, they're going to go, of course we work with that. That does not mean that is what they specialize in. That does not mean that they are highly trained in that. That means they've had a few clients. Or somebody, or they've had a few trainings. That's not the same thing. That's why I actually do think psychology today is really wonderful because those three, those are the three that I specialize in. I can say I work with the other stuff, but come to me for these specialties. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I can put down anything, and 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 I'm sorry to to say that publicly, but you, providers can say treatment programs can say, "Oh, we absolutely work with that," when
1: they've had they've had one one one-hour training. I mean, I wish there was a way for people to have to prove what their training is. And what I often tell clients is when they say, yes, we have someone that does that. Okay, great. How many years of experience they have treating that population where the majority of their caseload was that population? Can you tell me where they've gotten their clinical trainings in those things or who their clinical supervisors are so that I can check references and make sure they have the experience I need.
0: You supervise quite a bit. I love supervising. I It is one of my favorite things. I love when younger clinicians, meaning younger and experienced, come to me with cases and we get really deep into it and, and I can help them think of the case from a different perspective. What is it like supervising for
1: you? Oh, I mean... Supervision is actually like one of the biggest loves of my career. And I think because I'm an art therapist, I also get to have a little extra fun because a lot of my supervisees are art therapists who want to treat eating disorders with trans and gender nonconforming people. So for me, supervision is actually 50% making art and doing subconscious processing through artwork. And the other 50% is not just case consultation, but we need to go over a PowerPoint about how hormones work. Let's have an intellectual discussion about why do you think this client is acting out because they're taking testosterone? Is that because our our culture says that men are angry and violent? Testosterone is for men. So therefore, the acting out must be that. Let's pull that apart. Where did that come from? Right? What were your experiences with cis men growing up that that's how you're feeling? And then I love to give my supervisees a, this is for the therapy box please go to therapy please process these things there and these are the things that we're going to work on
0: yeah i think supervision is a magical it's it's magical to me i i absolutely love it there was something oh i know i was like there's something i was going to ask you and i can't remember let's let's talk a little bit about art therapy i as everyone knows i am a woman of words i can talk and talk and talk and talk 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 Then you take art and, and it's a totally different, you, you, you see more of somebody's psyche, you see the colors that they choose, the shapes, like talk a little bit about art therapy.
1: Oh, I mean, (laughs) it's just, so, you know, being, being an artist and being, wanting to be a therapist and discovering that you could do both at once was honestly one of the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me and i get tearful every time i talk about it because art therapy is actually what opened up the gateway for me to understand my body and my gender and actually heal from my eating disorder so it feels so personal and my partner actually became an art therapist at the same program after i did so it's extra special in this house um so i mean really art therapy is working with a therapist who has the same training as your kind of traditional social worker or counselor. And then there's all of this extra training we go through about how to assess artwork, what certain things in artwork means, there's different art therapy based assessments that we can use. And then it's how do we use different materials based on kind of what someone's experiencing. So in the art therapy world, there's all of these studies on like the use of clay with those that have been sexually abused or have experienced domestic violence. Um, My research that I've actually had published was on the use of political art for therapists who worked with domestic violence and the importance of having artwork that can be publicly displayed that expresses kind of the work that we do when we work with something so intense and what we need in terms of advocacy when we're tired, because we're tired too. Um, and it's incredible to me to meet someone to say, talk about their trauma and go, you know what I think would be really helpful for you painting and to almost watch their whole being open up without having to say a word. And what's beautiful is once that opening is there, if I use my words really well, we get to places that can take people months to get to. I, I think it is an incredible,
0: incredible modality. And I also think it's a very, hmm, how do I say this? I I just, I love watching when clients, almost like their, their nervous system quiets down. And they're focusing on the paper or the clay or whatever they're using. And you can see them like touching it, touching the material, getting a sensation, creating something that words are too difficult to use. And maybe they can use the words after they've gone through this part, but it's really, it is really, really magical.
1: I mean, the... To this day, I will never forget this moment. It was my first eating disorder job. I was hired to be the art therapist at a residential facility. And it was like a a very beautiful six bed facility locally. Um, And came in to do this thing. We do in art therapy by body scans. It's similar to body tracing. Um, Give everyone kind of this androgynous person outline and just kind of walk them through. I want you to start labeling for us just where things feel in your body right now. And there was a client in group that I, you know, when you have a gut instinct, right? You're like, you're going to disclose something big. This will probably push you to go there. And the whole team had been waiting for it. And, you know, we don't take bets on our clients, but it was one of those, I have a feeling it's sexual abuse. I have a feeling this will bring it out. And out of the corner of my eye, she is drawing this big black rectangle over any part of her body that could be sexualized. And then just starts to cry and looks at me and goes, Why did you have to do this to me today? Why do you always do this to me? And I remember getting tearful and being like, you know, I didn't purposefully do this to you today. And I was hoping this would come out because your eating disorder is holding on to this secret. And we had a group, everything was over. She asked to speak to me privately. You know, we did a quick check-in kind of about her artwork and how that felt for her and what she felt ready for in terms of with her own clinician and her own work. And, and she just looked at me and she asked, will it ever feel better than how this looks? And so I gave her a yellow chalk pastel because it could go over the black, but it could be washed away if she wanted it. And I said, so show me what it would look like if it would feel better. And I will just never forget that moment. It just like, I get so choked up whenever I think about her and I hope she's somewhere out there having a healthy functioning relationship with herself and other people and all of the things that she wanted, but she'd been in treatment for months and there was just going, never going to be words to express that experience. It It,
0: it is incredible. It is, I don't want to say beautiful, like, I, but it is, it's beautiful. When, when we can, when we can tap into somebody's suffering so they can actually express it for the first time, it is a beautiful, like Phoenix rising. They are coming up they are They are rising above, which by the way, then brings a lot of pain and emotion, but it's that unlocking and art therapy can absolutely do that. I think it's wonderful.
1: I agree. And I mean, also like every person's For example, trauma, right? Trauma leaves us in whatever place we were in when it started. So for adults, right, especially adults 30 and over who have had had childhood trauma that they've never processed, being invited to play and do things that you missed out during that trauma instead of telling me all those things is just a different experience. And what I really love about art therapy is like you and I can share a client and it will never be a, well, Karen said this and M said that. It'll be a, Karen, look what I did in session with M. Now I have words for you to do that process. It lends itself to like creating these outpatient treatment teams that I think we all really need as providers and our clients need when they're not in treatment. That is really incredible because then it goes back to our initial conversation, right? What do we want to do for our trans and gender non-conforming clients in particular that don't have anybody? So get yourself a good therapist and a good art therapist, right? And the dietitian, right? Get all the extra fun things. Insurance will cover most art therapists if they're licensed and you can get that supportive experience.
0: Um I I am so sad to say we're starting to close down this this incredible interview. Before I do, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, the first time I met you, which was just a few months ago, I, I went up to you. Remember, I went up to you and I like I like looked at you and I just said that you've like this has changed my life like you and it's not what you're saying. It's your energy. And so I just want to thank you. That's that's where I want to start. It's just how I feel. I I anyway, I gosh, Um. So I want to thank you for, for being part of this podcast. Um, it's very special that you are on and, and your words are so important. Is there anything that I didn't ask before we end that you'd like to share with listeners?
1: That is, a, that is an incredible question. Okay, so the, so the one thing I want everyone to think about, right? everyone gets therapy homework today. Um, in the public world, who models for you the type of human being that you want to be in the world and the way that you would want to be remembered? Find them, hold on to them, emulate the best parts of them, work on the worst parts of them. Um, I think it's important, whether you're an adult or a child, to just have people that you look up to and that you aspire to. I love
0: that we ended with homework. This is a first. So let's see if anyone reaches out to, show us their homework assignments. So, um, thank you again. It has been an honor having you here.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybytespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bytes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at recoverybytespod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show, or to submit a guest request, please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.